A fragmented system makes tracking COVID cases at school difficult. This is a challenging time to try to notify everybody who needs to be notified as quickly as possible. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. How San Diego is working to bring equity to the cannabis industry. Communities of color throughout the United States have been disproportionately targeted by the war on drugs. That includes arrest rates for possession and use, for sales, really any all aspect of it, you can pretty much bet that non-white people have gotten nailed for it harder than anybody else. Efforts to create more safe bike lanes in the city, plus Beth Accomando takes us to the Diversionary Theater as it opens for live performances. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. Parents of children enrolled in the San Marcos Unified School District were given cause for alarm after being informed that some students had been attending school with known COVID-19 positive test results, while the update issued by Superintendent Andy Johnson cautioned that these instances were rare The possibility of positive cases flying under the radar suggests flaws in how these cases were being tracked in the first place. Despite the low case numbers, the district's uneven case reporting system, first reported by the San Diego Union-Tribune, is indicative of how San Diego schools are constantly working to evolve their safety guidelines and protocols in the face of a pandemic. Joining us now with more is KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Can you start off by telling us the situation at San Marcos Unified? Yes. Um, so it was a statement made by the San Marcos superintendent, as you mentioned. And it is startling to hear that there were reports of students attending school with symptoms present or in a few limited cases, students attending school with known COVID-19 positive tests. Now, relatively speaking, it was less than 1%. They have a population of about 19,000 students, but still a handful and something to be concerned about. I think the way to frame this news is that that the superintendent was dealing in reality and was making the point that this is a challenging time to try to notify everybody who needs to be notified as quickly as possible. I mean, how did parents react to this? Well, as you can imagine, you don't want to hear that your child is attending classes with somebody who was positive. But again, the numbers are very low. I think the bigger headline for this story is about uh, the system or the lack of a system 
that notifies as quickly as possible. Of course, all of these uh, figures have to be reported to the San Diego County Health Department, and the County Health Department is doing the best that it can to inform school districts when they are notified of positive cases. That can take anywhere from one day up to four days. Uh, obviously, the quicker, the faster something can be done, but that's not always the case, depending on uh, the information that the county's receiving. What does this recent update reflect about the district's effort to keep track of cases? Well, I think the district is doing the best that the district can do. Until this pandemic happened, school districts were not prepared to be tracers of viruses. That was just not part of the skill set or the expectation. So I think what has happened is uh, districts have done the best that they can in order to try to get as current, uh, accurate information as they can uh, to distribute to their staff and to their parents. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Do I believe the district is doing the best that it can? Yes, I do. And you actually have some experience on this front. Can you talk about some of the challenges in reporting positive cases to school districts? So I was a a county COVID case investigator for 10 months up until last May. And I joined the county at the time when COVID was really out of control and was there for the surge that happened in December and January. And here's, here's the reality of it. Trying to get the most accurate information as possible was a challenge, uh, as it was my job when I got a positive case report to reach out and try to find that person and find find out who they had been in contact with and if they had traveled and what symptoms had they experienced. And the problem is when the cases just don't stop, you know, it slows down the process in notifying folks. And part of my job as the investigator was to get as much detail as possible to then pass along to a tracer who would then be assigned to following that person or their family or find out if it was an outbreak at a school or a business. Looking ahead, San Diego Unified votes tomorrow on a vaccine mandate for students. What is the district's administration saying about this mandate? Well, it's very clear that San Diego Unified, uh, being the largest, uh, second largest uh, school district in the state and the largest here in San Diego County, is doing everything that it can to try to uh, stop uh, COVID-19. And so this mandate would say, um, you know, all eligible students 12 and up would be required to be vaccinated. Um, otherwise, they would be required to attend classes from home and do distance learning. We actually spoke with Richard uh, Barrera, who is the board president, and he was very clear on what he thinks. I absolutely support vaccine mandates for eligible students. It's the best way to keep everybody uh, safe. And it's also the way to keep our students in school. You know, the more that we allow the uh, uh, Delta variant to spread on our campuses, the more likely that we'll have positive cases and contact tracing uh, will force uh, students to be out, you know, for periods of time, as well as staff to be out for periods of time. And now this mandate is expected to be met with legal action from community groups. Do we have any sense of how that's expected to pan out? Well, uh, it's already in motion. Uh, The group called Let Them Choose filed a legal uh, complaint last week uh, in anticipation of the vaccination mandate passing. And uh, they are ready to go to court uh, in order to stop it. Now, to be clear, this is an offshoot of the Let Them Breathe organization, which uh, actually later this week goes to court 
on issues regarding mandates for masks. So they will be protesting uh, at outside of the school board meeting, which is being held virtually, uh, so it is more symbolic than anything else, but they uh, are determined to be heard. And what they also want to make clear is this is not about being an anti-vaxxer, so to speak. It is about offering parents the choice whether to have their own children vaccinated or not. I've been speaking with KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez. M.G., thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Despite some districts reporting low case rates, that doesn't mean the impact isn't widespread. As Valley Public Radio's Mari Bolaños reports, even small COVID outbreaks at schools have big impacts on families, especially in rural communities. Laura Garcia stands outside her home with two of her kids and their ducks, chickens, and goats in Raisin City, a small, unincorporated community southwest of Fresno. It's a morning in early September, and she's wearing a mask because her oldest daughter, Jennifer, who attends Raisin City Elementary School, tested positive for COVID in late August. She says she reached out to other parents in her daughter's class to let them know. When I told the parents that my daughter tested positive, some of them said their children were feeling the symptoms, so they tested them as well, and they were positive. At least three students in Garcia's daughter's class tested positive for the virus. Following Fresno County Health Department guidelines, school officials sent all the kids in the class home to quarantine for nearly a week after Labor Day. The virus, of course, spread beyond the school children. In total, four of Garcia's kids contracted the virus. Garcia and her husband also got it. He works in the fields and is the family's sole provider. It affects us because he's the only one that works to pay the rent, to buy the stuff for the kids, and to pay for the bills. The Garcia family isn't the only one facing loss of income and education due to the pandemic. An estimated 44 percent of Latino parents nationwide reported an interruption in employment due to child care, according to a Kaiser Family Foundation survey published in late August. It also shows that half of Latino parents with incomes below $40,000 reported their children fell behind academically. Forty-year-old Carmen Cuatenco Leon's 13-year-old daughter is another one of the eighth graders at Raisin City Elementary School who tested positive for COVID. Cuatenco Leon is a single mother of three. She says she also had to take time off from her work in the fields to care for her children. But her biggest concern is the learning loss that her children face through the pandemic and again while quarantined. The kids are behind. They are very behind. And of course, they need to go to school. But we also need to take care of the health of our kids. Tanya Pacheco-Warner is co-director of the Central Valley Health Policy Institute at Fresno State. She says many people in rural communities have lower education levels and fewer job opportunities. She says that creates a perfect storm, making it difficult for residents to take time off of work to care for their children. We see that burden fall especially hard on rural families who don't have a lot of other options other than not getting an income during the time that their children have to stay home. To prevent parents from losing income while taking care of quarantined kids, Pacheco Werner says it's important that local officials collaborate on how to protect students. That's especially needed in smaller rural districts. It's going to take a state-coordinated, school-wide, school-based effort 
to really think through how to begin testing and surveillance in those places that simply don't have the infrastructure to do it themselves. Nearly three weeks after the Raisin City class was sent home to quarantine, Laura Garcia and Carmen Guadenco's families have recovered from their symptoms. But their kids are still recovering from the learning loss. And Garcia's husband's employer still hasn't paid him for the two weeks he was in quarantine. I'm Adi Bolaños in Fresno. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another hasn't. This is Port of Entry, the Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. When Californians voted to legalize the recreational use of marijuana back in 2016, there was also an effort to undo some of the damage done by the war on drugs. Communities of color were disproportionately affected by arrests and jail sentences for illegal marijuana sales. And the new law held the promise that the legal California marijuana industry would be created with a social equity component, helping members of previously targeted communities to establish legal cannabis businesses. But while both San Diego City and county officials say they are committed to establishing a cannabis social equity program, those plans are still not in place. Joining me is Voice of San Diego reporter Jackie Bryant. And Jackie, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. What's the aim of social equity in the cannabis business? Is it simply to get more people of color to own cannabis businesses? That's definitely part of it. Um, communities of color throughout, you know, the United States have been disproportionately targeted by the war on drugs. That includes arrest rates for possession and use, for sales. Um, really, any all aspect of it, you can pretty much bet that non-white people have gotten nailed for it harder than anybody else. It's also an effort to address the unlicensed or black market, because a lot of the people growing and selling weed in the days before legalization were also, you know, disproportionately jailed. And those include, you know, farmers here in San Diego County, up in Humboldt, who have been operating on the margins illegally for many years. So it's an address to basically bring into parity those with capital and access to making money in this market and those who were really honestly doing business, even though it wasn't legal, and to kind of bring those two forces together. Now, since 2017, marijuana sales and distribution have been banned in San Diego's unincorporated areas, but that's expected to change soon, isn't it? 
It is and it isn't. Earlier this January, when the um, County Board of Supervisors voted to, you know, to start the process to lift that ban, the idea was that by October they were going to, and then using very vague language the whole time, the idea was that they were really going to start this to get this in motion during the, you know, board meeting in October. That's still happening, but they've kind of rolled it back a little bit and softened the timeline. Um, you know, bringing an industry from the shadows into the light is an extremely complicated process. In California, which is where we've grown the weed historically forever, it's even more complicated than anywhere else because we had such a robust and significant illegal market. So yes, we the, the board has told me and clarified after, you know, we talked last week for, for this story that they will be voting to expand the operations of the five dispensaries in Ramona and El Cajon areas uh, that are now currently operational, kind of in a gray area, legally speaking, in the unincorporated areas. And then once they square away those existing five entities, then they're going to continue to move to um, lift that ban and bring cultivation, manufacturing and sales to the unincorporated areas. Will the new countywide ordinance have a social equity component? Yes, it will. The details of that are still being hammered out and they've hired a consultant, the county has, to um, bring that in and and get that up to speed. They have many different um, industry watchdog advisors weighing in on that process. So it will. And it's intended to, you know, give special opportunities and legs up and mentoring programs to, you know, people in community of color, as well as people who have, you know, citations, have run into the law with previous cannabis citations. What about the city of San Diego? Where is the city in establishing a cannabis social equity program? They're also currently in the very early stages. The city, you know, just formulated its cannabis business division. And so as part of that, they will be, I can't say for sure, but it seems to be in tandem with the county. I know that they're talking and working together and also consulting with other cities. You know, consulting with other cities, that's a point, because even though both the city and county have not been prompt in putting together a social equity plan, you write that may actually be helpful because San Diego can learn from the mistakes of other cities. What kind of mistakes are those? Yeah, you know, obviously, in theory, social equity is a, is a great and necessary idea. But in practice, like many things, it's much harder to implement. And it, it the truth is, is it just hasn't gone well in other places. I mean, that's You know, it happens when you, again, infuse something very bureaucratic into something that was once freewheeling and and mostly illegal. So some of the mistakes that have happened have been, again, bureaucratic errors, you know, and COVID obviously did not help things. So a lot of, you know, understaffed equity divisions with different municipalities, cannabis divisions, um, lots of paperwork, a lot of qualifications, just a lot of red tape that's been really hard and has been halting the process and, and halting people who are trying to benefit from this to get their businesses online. Um, Some of the other things are that in certain areas, it's not super difficult to qualify for equity status to get some of these benefits in these programs. And so what a lot of business people will do is you'll have, let's give an example, a white, you know, wealthy, well-capitalized businessman who owns a cannabis company, and he'll find someone who qualifies for equity, bring them on as a business partner, and now suddenly you have an equity business. That's not really how this is supposed to work, right? So that's one of the main problems. Um, and, and there are different ways in different cities and counties and states of taking advantage of the situation. And we found that, unfortunately, that has happened in many places. So knowing that from off the top, the county and the city can hopefully put safeguards in place to, to mitigate some of those opportunities to take advantage. 
Now, you spoke with the head of San Diego's cannabis stakeholder group, who told you that cannabis discussions have to stop focusing on land use regulations and start focusing on community. What do they say is needed in a cannabis social equity program? So, yeah, you know, I think everyone obviously recognizes that land use is extremely important. Cannabis is an agricultural product, but she is right. The conversation frequently starts there and it ignores the humans involved in this process. I mean, it's it's no different from any other discussion of labor. It's always about the business and the framework and the workers for some reason, even though they're the most important thing, come last. So I think... You know, what um, Miss St. Julian, along with other people in her group, want, they want mentorship programs, they want opportunities for, you know, to get uh, equity operators in front of people with capital. But really what these people need is money. And, And that's a big criticism of these programs, you know, that I forgot to mention earlier, is that they're really nice in theory and it's nice to give people help and training, but they need money. Everyone needs money to run a business. And so I think that improving that pipeline and getting equity operators in front of the right people is going to be a focus of these programs, you know, hopefully from the top. Now you have an event coming up to spotlight the work on social equity and cannabis. Tell us about that. I do. So um, Voice of San Diego has me moderating a panel for them tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Nathan Fletcher will be there and Andrea St. Julian, um, who, you know, is the head of the San Diego's Cannabis Stakeholder Group. She will also be there. The reason why I wanted to have this panel, honestly, was to keep everybody accountable and, and to let people know that we're watching. And this is a really important thing to have in this industry. And we haven't done a good job on it, frankly. It's kind of incredible that the eighth biggest city in the country, the second biggest cannabis market, you know, I mean, the largest legal cannabis market in the world doesn't really have an equity program. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Jackie Bryant. Jackie, thank you. Thank you so much. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria has a goal of adding nine miles of protected bike lanes to city streets each year. The point is to make biking safer and more comfortable, especially for less experienced riders. But KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says for some families, the change hasn't come soon enough. Laura Keenan picks up her one-year-old son, Evan, sits him down in her living room, and reads him a book. He loves this book. (laughs) Touch your hand to the big hand? Yeah, good. And the small hand? Evan's big blue eyes keep darting from the book to our camera. His big smile belies a horrific tragedy this family experienced two weeks ago. Evan's father, Matt, was biking through Mission Valley when a driver going the opposite direction crossed the road's double yellow lines and struck Matt head-on. Neither Matt's helmet nor his lights could save him. He died almost immediately. He was just so excited to see Evan grow up and do all this stuff with Evan. Uh, Like I mentioned, he was going to take his first steps soon, and Matt wanted to teach him music and play sports with him, and he's never going to be able to do that. Laura knows her son will grow up not knowing his father, but she's trying to keep Matt's memory alive. Her husband was funny, kind, charismatic, a caretaker, and he loved biking. You know, he'd ride to work. Um, He works in La Jolla, so he'd ride from North Park to La Jolla. He would ride his bike to go to the grocery store or just run different errands. It was just, if if a day went by without biking, it was not a complete day for him. 
Laura's husband was riding in a narrow painted bike lane when he was hit. She's convinced if the bike lane had some kind of physical barrier, a curb, even plastic posts, Matt would still be alive today. Paint isn't protection. Elizabeth Mayer is program manager for the nonprofit Bike SD. She says Matt Keenan's death shows many of the city's planned and existing bike lanes are inadequate, especially considering the city's adoption of Vision Zero, a campaign to end all traffic deaths by 2025. There are certain areas that do not have protected bike lanes that you know, we believe should. And I think that in order to meet the goals that they set, both for climate and for Vision Zero, there needs to be swift change. Mayor Todd Gloria says he's speeding up the process of adding new bike lanes and improving existing ones with more protection. Last week, he announced Pershing Drive in Balboa Park would have new protected bike lanes next month. That came after two people, a cyclist and a scooter rider, were killed by drivers on Pershing this summer. So the mayor can, to a certain extent, redirect staff to different priorities. Jordan Moore is a fiscal and policy analyst with the city's independent budget analyst's office. He says Gloria can order city workers to create new bike lanes pretty much anywhere, if he decides they're urgent. Gloria's current budget also includes a new team of 12 staffers to design and implement nine miles of protected bike lanes per year. That's less than the 25 miles bike activists have called for. Moore says 25 miles are theoretically possible, but that would require a big shift in priorities and money. The question would be, where would you find it and what would those trade-offs have to be? Because it really is a question of trade-offs and service level impacts if you don't have new revenue. In other words, bike lanes have to compete with all the city's other infrastructure needs, like filling potholes and fixing broken sidewalks. Beyond the financial challenges, new bike lanes in San Diego can be controversial. They sometimes require removing parking or a lane of travel for cars. <laughs> but Laura Keenan, now a single mother, hopes those who oppose protected bike lanes keep things in perspective. If you were able to put this bike lane there, like maybe another wife and another son would have their husband and dad one day because it can save a life. And I would do anything to take this pain away from anybody else because it's just the worst experience, like worse than I could ever imagine. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News. The city of Encinitas is going natural gas free. A vote by the city council last week bans the use of natural gas hookups in most new construction, from commercial buildings to granny flats. Leaders say the building electrification ordinance is part of the city's commitment to reduce greenhouse gases. But critics say the move is a political ploy, which won't do much to impact climate change. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune energy reporter Rob Nicoleski. And Rob, welcome. Hi, Maureen. It's good to be talking to you again. Yes, indeed. Now, is Encinitas the first city in California to ban natural gas in new construction? No, the very first city was Berkeley, California, back in 2019. And since then, a lot of other California cities have followed suit, but most of them have been in the Northern California area. There's only been a handful in Southern California, including Ojai, and I believe Santa Monica. Uh, those of respective communities passed 
these natural gas bans. But Encinitas is the first in San Diego County. So we might be able to see this um, sort of uh, snowball to other communities in Southern California as well. Now, this was a unanimous decision by the Encinitas City Council. What did those leaders say about this vote? They basically said that this was a move to combat climate change, to become more environmentally committed, uh, and it will be able to reduce local greenhouse gases and air pollutants within building structures in Encinitas. That's what they said. So in new construction in Encinitas, no gas heaters, no gas fireplaces, and no gas stoves? That's correct for all new construction. Now, there are a few exceptions, uh, but for the most part, though, is there's no new gas infrastructure. Now, that leads to a question, what's going to happen with some restaurants? And because there are some restaurants like barbecue restaurants, restaurants that use woks, for example, that they say that they need a gas flame. So there are some exceptions there, but if there is an exception that is made for a restaurant that you know wants to use an open flame, they have to A, get an exception. And once that exception is given, they have to uh, show that they're making some sort of moves to mitigate any greenhouse gas emissions that might come from the kitchen inside of that restaurant. So it's a fairly strict uh, presentation or fairly strict measure. And will this increase the cost of construction in Encinitas? Well, the mayor of Encinitas, uh, Catherine Blakespear, uh, who incidentally is running for state Senate in 2022, I talked to her uh, the other day when they uh, on the city council right before they had their vote. And she said that she did not believe that this would lead to, quote, substantially, uh, substantially lead to higher costs. In fact, she was thinking that uh, if someone has a granny flat to their house, wants to add a granny flat to their house by not putting in natural gas infrastructure, that could lead to a reduction in costs. But there were no real specific numbers tied to this uh, measure that was passed by the city council. And how is our local utility, San Diego Gas and Electric, responding to the Encinitas vote? That's very interesting because naturally, as <laughs> you're talking about gas, uh, San Diego Gas and Electric has the word gas in their in their title. So I was curious to see what they would say about it. Uh, they thought that they gave a, a, a pretty carefully worded comment to me here at the Union Tribune. Uh, and they said that sdg supports policies that are cost effective and inclusive of all technologies with the potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Now, SDG, SDG&E and also their parent company, Sempra, and also uh, a fellow subsidiary of Sempra, SoCal Gas and Electric, or SoCal Gas, that is, in the Los Angeles area, they've made a few steps towards trying to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that a natural gas, the natural gas can cause that use, trying to capture methane from those dairy farms and try to use that in a, quote, natural sort of way and make, have have, have a more uh, renewable natural gas. But again, that is an open question, too, about whether or not that in the long run will be, will be economic. So in the end, though, the Encinitas Ordinance banning new natural gas hookups m- may not have much impact because it seems not much new construction is happening in the city. Yeah, I, I talked to Gary London, who's a San Diego 
area real estate analyst. And I asked him what he thought if this would make a major difference, whether construction uh, and you know, construction builders would, would object to it. And he pointed out that Encinitas, like a lot of coastal cities, has a lot of restrictions on buildings, on, on, on actually doing new construction. And also Encinitas, like a lot of coastal cities, are pretty, it's pretty much built out. And so he doubts whether or not they'll be able to have a whole lot of new construction to begin with and whether or not this will have a really major impact one way or the other. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune energy reporter Rob Nikoleski. Rob, as always, thank you so much. Thank you, Maureen. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The California Report magazine visits some of the best secret spots across the state for their yearly hidden gems show. One of them is in nearby Joshua Tree. When people talk about the area, they often use words like striking or spectacular, but local beauty isn't confined to the national park. There's an oasis of style in this small desert community, and as reporter Peter Gilstrap found out, it's part salon, part museum, and all roadside attraction. Outside on Highway 62, the temperature is well into three digits. But inside the Beauty Bubble Salon and Museum, it's a cool and constant 69 degrees, with a strong chance of time warp. You're welcome to walk through the museum. That's my life's work. It's 30 years of collecting everything back there. They call me America's hair historian now. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody had to do it. Since 2004, Jeff Hafler has been the owner-operator of the Beauty Bubble, currently housed in a 1940s one-bedroom bungalow turned storefront. Floor to ceiling, wall to wall, the place is crammed with some 3,000 beauty care artifacts going back over a hundred years. You'll see vintage advertisements, framed magazine covers, and a rack of unopened hairnets from the 20s and 30s with names like Bonton, Jacconet, and Pretty Miss. You'll see Elvis and Dolly Parton looking down at you from black velvet, and you'll see aging mechanical beauty devices that look like instruments of torture. In the back room, on a deco dresser, there's a matching set of pink mirrors, brushes, and jars with a note that says, Marion's dresser set from the 40s, found in mom's attic, donated by her daughter. And almost the entire time I've been collecting, people have been donating these random beauty things to the collection, like rollers and clips and barrettes. Someone threw a bag of rollers in the front door and said, here's grandma's rollers, we didn't want to throw them away. Do you ever turn anything down that's donated? No, that's part of the problem. No. <laughs> but that is what makes the place so unique. Included with your modern-day cuts, colors, and curls comes the sensory engulfing overkill of it all, taking you on a journey to a bygone era of luxurious beauty care. One of the most common comments is that it reminds people of their mother or their grandmother. And I love that because I was close with my grandmother. I like old ladies' trinkets. <laughs> So what brings you to the beauty bubble? Everything brings me to the beauty bubble. (laughs) 
Heather Morgan is sitting in a salon chair wearing a big smile and a platinum blonde pixie cut crafted by Hafler. She's been a regular at the bubble since she relocated from L.A. back in 2017. But her big city hair fits right in with the high desert aesthetic. There's a lot of people in the desert who go out and rock their L.A. style. I thought I would have to like stop going platinum or become some old desert rag, but <laughs> Jeff is out here paving the way for style. Hafler grew up in Pickerington, Ohio, just outside of Columbus, where he went to beauty school. Back then, he fell in love with a 1940s hairdryer. It sparked an interest in the vintage tools of his newfound trade. For that first year, I was just collecting and decorating my bathroom with it. And I thought, well, this is fascinating history. And this is beautiful, interesting stuff. So I was 20 years old, and I said, I'm going to make a roadside attraction beauty parlor museum. And so here I am 29 years later, and I'm living that dream. 17 years ago, Hafler and his husband, jewelry designer Michael Wynn, bought a home in Wonder Valley, a dot on the desert map 30 miles east of Joshua Tree. It's an unincorporated land of rough dirt roads and endless horizons. And at such a rural part of San Bernardino County, home salons were and are still legal. And who was coming out? Were you, I mean, you, was it local I had people, like Marines? the high society of the high desert, is what I call them. Those early clients have stayed loyal. But here in Joshua Tree, where Hafler moved his salon in 2015, a steady stream of tourists and locals and first-timers wander into gawk at the display. Pasha Simpson and Cordelia Reynolds are making their way through Hafler's beloved trove of old lady trinkets. This is the first time you guys have been here. Yeah, and it's really awesome. You just walk into this little wonderland. I love places that have so much history and like have taken such care to collect amazing stuff. Like Heather Morgan, Reynolds is another former Angelino. She and her boyfriend live a sustainable lifestyle off the grid in the nearby community of Landers. So if you're off grid, how do you maintain your beauty standards? I mean, it's a struggle. <laughs> I should come here and get my hair washed because I haven't had hot water in two years. You don't have to travel to the desert to see Hafler's collection. He had a recent show at the SFO Museum in San Francisco's airport featuring vintage beauty items and the sculptures he creates from discarded hair care ephemera. But that's not all. You know, I dream about building a geodesic dome and making it look like a giant hairdryer. The beauty museum would be housed in the world's largest hairdryer. It just has to happen. Like the miles of hair that got him here, Hafler's dream in the desert never stops growing. That was Peter Gilstrap reporting on one of the state's hidden gems, the beauty bubble inside Joshua Tree. Diversionary Theater just reopened to live performances over the weekend. In addition, it opened its doors to a newly renovated building. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando got a tour of the facility last week and spoke with Executive Artistic Director Matt Morrow. Matt, we are sitting in what is now the Clark Cabaret. So explain what this space is here. Yeah, so it's really wonderful. We blew out the entire front wall of Diversionary's 
ground floor. So when you walk up to the building, it's very clear and that it's open for everyone to come and enjoy. It's also a safety and security measure in terms of COVID-19 and airflow. So it's, it's very open and breezy. We have an indoor-outdoor experience for patrons to come and enjoy. And this space is uh, Diversionary's way of honoring the gay bar experience, which is an important safe space to the LGBTQ community, historically speaking. The gay bar of decades past were spaces that the LGBTQ community would gather and commune, and then ultimately launch the LGBTQ movement for equal rights. And as of late, you know, as the LGBTQ plus community has been entering the mainstream, our gay spaces have been going away. And so this space is meant to honor the history and importance of having a space like this specifically for the LGBTQ community to come together and celebrate and honor our community. And one of the ways that you're honoring that is on the counter space of your bar and on your wallpaper. Yes. A cool feature of the space is that our bar and our wallpaper in the space features images and newspaper articles and newspaper headlines about the LGBTQ community both locally and nationally. We did a wonderful outreach project with Lambda Archives of San Diego where we asked the community to send in their photos of them protesting during pride parades and engaging in queer spaces locally. And then we mixed those in with other historical photos that we gathered from Lambda Archives to create a collage that is permanently embedded inside the actual bar and walls of the space. Matt, I had a chance to talk to you during the pandemic, which Diversionary Theater put to good use by doing this remodel. What has that process been like and what is it like being on the verge of reopening for in-person performances? Oh my God, it's so exciting. You know, the pandemic was, is, it's continuing to persist, right? It's been such a tough time for everyone, but this project has been a beacon for us to focus on and to work towards. So we, we couldn't produce as a theater, uh, producing live entertainment for our community. So we turned to focus on how we can make this space really unique and really special and also safe. As a queer space, we are very proud that for 36 years, we've been offering a safe space to our community. The pandemic has challenged us to reevaluate what a safe space means. And so we looked at the science and uh, started integrating a bunch of safety measures to really maximize the safety and security of our actual space. We optimized our air circulation systems and integrated a MRF 13 filtration in our HVAC for our main stage. You can see on our cabaret tables and part of our bar up there is all made out of copper and copper actually neutralizes viral contagion. And then we also designed easy to clean surfaces. The seats upstairs in our main stage are leatherette, so they're super easy to wipe clean and uh, make sure that everyone who engages in our space feels safe and welcome. And what is going to be the play that you're kicking off back to in-person performances? Yes, I'm so excited that we're bursting back into action with the West Coast premiere of Donye Love's One in Two. This is only the second production of the show since its debut right before the pandemic in New York City. And the title one and two is uh, a reference to a CDC statistic that is unfortunately still relevant today that says one in two 
queer African-American men will contract HIV AIDS in their lifetime. That means that the epidemic has not ended since the 80s, especially for our queer African-American community. And no, one, no one's talking about it. So Diversionary was founded in 1986 at the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And so reopening the space, it's really great to re-engage with uh, our founding momentum and also bring light to this very important issue affecting our queer African-American community. And when people return to an in-person performance here, they're also going to be finding a brand new stage? Yes, our newly coined Alfred Mazur and Robert Granite main stage has been completely renovated. We have new theater seats. We took down a wall, so we've expanded the stage itself to make it a little bit larger. It's still an incredibly intimate stage with 102 seats. So our patrons who are used to coming and engaging with our, our theater productions in an intimate way, it'll still be an intimate experience. So it'll just be a little bit larger. And part of the renovation for this lower level is you have a very nice new little stage. Yeah, the stage down here in the cabaret is really special. It's, of course, like everything diversionary, intimate. And we have a parlor grand down here, which is going to permanently live on our little intimate stage here two nights a week. We'll have somebody on the keys, so to honor sort of the cabaret, the piano bar cabaret feel of our queer space. And yeah, we'll have musical entertainment down here on the stage, stand up, all sorts of fun things. And part of the remodel, did that also involve creating an educational space here? <laughs> yeah, so Diversionary is not just a theater. We also have an arts education wing that has been flourishing over the past seven years. We have seven arts education programs that serve all of San Diego County, thousands of young people and older LGBTQ people and our allied citizens. That is really more and more every day becoming a big part of what we do here at Diversionary. And to that end, we have a space dedicated for all of our work in arts education. It's the Tom Maddox and Randy Clark Arts Education Center. And it's a space where our director of arts education and teaching artists can convene to plan curriculum development and lesson plans. And it's also a space that's outfitted with teleconferencing capabilities so we can speak with our partners locally without having to be in person, as well as our national partners that we have now. One thing that the pandemic did for us was show us that we could broaden our reach via an online platform. We inaugurated a new program in the teen playwriting lab that's specifically for queer young playwrights. And it was so popular that we had to run two over the pandemic. And that's something that we're going to continue online for the future. And that program is in partnership with an off-Broadway theater company in New York City called Rattlestick Playwrights Theater. Uh, and so that space is going to help uh, maintain all of our relationships with partner organizations across the country. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the new and improved diversionary theater space. It's my pleasure, Beth. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Diversionary's Matt Morrow. The play One in Two runs through October 24th at the newly renovated Diversionary Theater stage.